We're going to pivot with this podcast on Monday, expanding from its single-minded coronavirus focus since March to include other news topics. COVID-19, obviously, will continue to feature prominently, but other news is happening and we need to talk about it. For the time being, though, we will remain with our weekday schedule. So welcome back to This Week in the CLE, the podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with my colleagues, Chris Wernowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Friday at last. Happy May Day. (laughs) It's May. Yeah. (laughs) What does that mean? What does it mean, though? Really? Is it any different than April? Uh, Anyway, so the weekend is when people run errands and encounter a strange new world. So let's start there. Is our new normal a version of the dystopian landscapes that have fueled so many sci-fi movies and shows? When I raised this a week ago, I didn't know what to expect. I thought you might come back and say, there's no story there, Chris. You're being crazy. For Chris Warnowski, reporter Evan McDonald went out looking and actually found dystopia. Right. So he talked to these these experts in sort of clinical psychology and human behavior. And, and what was fascinating is he sort of gave reasoning to this feeling that I feel like maybe we've heard a lot of people talk about and maybe something that we've sort of felt ourselves that everything just feels kind of weird. And like going out in public for a lot of people right now is a, a really anxiety producing process. And, and, you know, it, it's some of the reasons that they talk about, you know, they seem really obvious you know they seem it like common sense if you think about it but when you put it all together it's like wow like we've like one of the things that they they talked about is how much of our communication is done through nonverbal stuff so now that half of our faces are covered up we can't see what emotion people have so we're having to sort of relearn what it's like we're relearning different verbal cues and that's something that as as human beings we we struggle with a little bit and, and stuff like that takes time. So, you know, I think there's an overriding sense in the story that if this continues and we, we have to do this for a long time, or if this becomes something that we have to do forever, that, you know, we'll eventually sort of settle into a groove with it. But right now, you know, the fact that we live in a relatively healthy country compared to others compared to some others, not so much, but, but, you know, we're, we've never had something as pervasive as, as like SARS where in, in some Asian countries, they've been wearing masks for, for a long, long time. And so, you know, those things take time to get used to. And so once All right. we, so I forgot who brought this up, but someone in said in one of our discussions that in one hospital, people are trying to get around this mask thing by wearing buttons with smiling faces on them of what they look like to counter the effects. Th- does anybody think, Laura Johnston, Jenkins, <laughs> does anybody think that would be helpful? Do, you yeah. know, if you had that on your, on your lapel or your shirt? That was Dave Campbell, our sports editor, who brought that up. And I think it's a great idea. It's like the soccer mom button that shows you're so proud of your kid, except it's you. And you're like, I'm really a nice person. And I think, I think Chris is right about the not seeing part of people's faces and you're not seeing them smile. But I also think people are not talking. So if we're going to have, they're just kind of very wary of everyone and they're, they're not talking to each other. It's just a very silent, you know, scary kind of distrustful feeling. Well, in the story, somebody said, we now look at each other, not just as people that can get each other sick, but as people who can kill us if we 
don't carry on, which is a striking thing. I'm walking around in a grocery store, and if I get too close to certain people, it could kill me. That is a distance thing. And it and it and it's it's weird because it's we're all getting used to it at a different time. So, you know, the other day I talked about how you know, I've asked, I've had to ask people to, you know, that aren't wearing masks to stay off the elevator. And it's like, you know, I feel like I'm being rude. They probably think, ah, this is rude. But then your mind goes, wait a minute, you're a vector for disease. So am I, we probably shouldn't be in this small space together. So let, 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 let me explore that a little bit, because I'm wondering if there's an extra level of judgment now that didn't exist before very much in the vein of what you just said. I went into a Heinen's last weekend, saw a few people not wearing masks, and I thought to myself, they're morons. What's wrong with them? On the other side of the coin, one of our editors said he was ridiculed by a stranger because he was wearing a mask. Is it our anxiety about COVID-19 that just makes us a little bit more judgmental of the people around us and that that is also increasing our distance? I think it's that we all want to think of ourselves as sensible and smart people. So if someone is out there doing something radically different than what we think is right, that threatens our very sense of self. And I think people take it really personally. This is Jane Cahoon. I had kind of a similar experience when I was waiting in line at the grocery store recently. There was this guy unmasked who... He didn't want to wait in line because he just needed one item. And he's kind of ranting to no one in particular saying, you know, this is like Russia, you know. And I, I really, <laughs> I thought the same thing, Chris. I thought this guy's a moron. So Dr. Amy Acton uh, repeatedly has pointed out something Chris just pointed out, that there are cultures that have been wearing masks for years, since the SARS outbreak, at least, which is more than a decade ago. I haven't seen a study that examines whether people in those countries have learned to better read the expressions just around the eyes. The eyes are very expressive, you know, but but it's not the whole face. One of the things we do is, as humans is adapt. I mean, two months ago, we weathered whether we could do our jobs from our living rooms, and now many of us prefer it. Is, is this just a matter of time? You know, Chris said we're getting used to this at different times, but over time, will we learn to read facial expressions better with the masks on, do you think? I think so. And I think, you know, one of the things that the, the folks in, that Evan interviewed for his story pointed out that, you know, it, it's an opportunity to learn practices from other cultures. And so we're Americans. We There's a lot of pride in, in what being American means and everything. So, you know, I think there's some baked in stubbornness for us. But, you know, I think, you know, we go through stressful things whether it's with a person or with a family member and, 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 you know, and we adapt, we'll figure out what we keep talking about is this quote unquote new normal. We'll all get there at different paces. You know, well, you know the stubborn <laughs> guy at the grocery store is not going to get there as fast as us, but no. Know. And and it's America. We protect the rights of morons. So <laughs> check out, check, check out Evan McDonald's story on cliven.com. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. I think it's also in the Plain Dealer today. Will local schools and colleges be savaged by state budget cuts because of the coronavirus? Reporter Andrew Tobias published a story late yesterday that said Ohio has a $2.4 billion budget hole and education is tops on the hit list. Jane Cahoon, local schools and universities have been on the front lines of coping with this pandemic, cutting their budgets. Say it isn't so. 
Well, the governor really hasn't said anything specific about this. So Andrew talked to other people with state budget knowledge and, um, you know, they, they've got to balance the budget by the end of the fiscal year, which ends June 30th. And the bulk of the budget spending is on Medicaid, prisons, higher ed, and K-12 education. So it's hard to cut Medicaid or prisons. So that leaves the schools really, really vulnerable here. Well, and in some ways, I would argue this is the fallout of the John Kasich years in governor. He tore into local school budgets to prop up the state budget and build his rainy day fund and pay for state income tax cuts that people really didn't need. The schools already have been running on shoestrings because of John Kasich, and now the state's going to hit them again? Yeah, and like I said, I mean, they're constitutionally obligated to balance the budget, unlike the federal government. And um, speaking of the federal government, they're hoping that maybe they can get some money from the federal coronavirus relief package. I, I'm not quite sure how that would work. Or or they could maybe try some old budget tricks like deferring certain payments. And But uh, I'll tell you, the legislature does not want to hear the term tax increase here. No, even though they've cut it repeatedly. This would hurt urban districts more than rural, I suspect, because the urban districts get more money from the state. So once again, we could have Columbus sticking it to the cities that generate most of the state's tax money. Well, Chris, you could speculate on that, and you probably would not be wrong. Speaking of cuts, do we know what the state is doing on the transportation side of the house? The gas tax pays for a lot of the transportation budget. The collection of that's got to be in the gutter. No one's buying gas because very few people are driving so they have to make some kind of accommodation, right? Yeah, I mean, just about every type of revenue is taking a hit, you know, with people not not driving, as you said. So we're we're looking into the specifics on that. That the governor said at his briefing Thursday that he would be talking soon about more specifics. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Are downtown companies in Cleveland bringing back their workforce when restrictions on those companies are lifted on Monday? Today begins the reopening of Ohio with non-essential surgeries again permitted and dentist offices allowed to open. Chris Wernowski reporter Kaylee Remington did some checking on what happens Monday, and I don't think anyone she talked to is bringing people back right away. Right. So we had her speak with several of the bigger employees, uh, mostly in the white collar sector, not, not, not like manufacturing or anything. So she talked to uh, Key Bank, Medical Mutual, Quicken Loans, and Sherwin Williams, and Progressive Insurance, and almost all of them said they're going to continue to keep the staff that they have at home at home. I believe there was one. Uh, Sherwin Williams said that they might do a, a sort of phased-in approach to bringing people back into the office, but they said it's going to be really slow and it's going to be really deliberate. I suspect these companies surveyed their employees and heard what we keep hearing. No one wants to go back to indoor shared space with other people because that's how the virus gets transmitted. And I've asked you all this before. If we reopened our offices and gave you the choice of working at home or working in the office, would any of you go in or would you keep working from home? I would not go in. <laughs> yeah, no offense to any of you guys, but I would probably Especially the person who normally sits across from you, correct? Right. Yeah, that's me. Um I think I think there I think there's a lot of concern about people's health, obviously, and, and for people getting individually sick. But I think from a business perspective, it's also 
this is probably the most cost effective path for a lot of these companies too, because you have to think that that all of these orders and and things that that companies are going to be required to do in order to make their buildings and offices ready for people to come back, it's going to cost money. And Although so I got to tell you at our office, they've been disinfecting it like every day. I mean, they've been going around every day with the, on the doorknobs and everything else, but you're right. It costs money here. Here, look, here's the basic question at home. You don't have to wear a mask all day. If you go into the office, you're going to have to wear a mask all day. Who wants to do that? Right. Except, uh-huh. you know, doctors, nurses. Yeah, that's true. All right, we'll have a photographer in downtown Cleveland Monday looking for the big return, but we suspect it'll look like it does now, which is ghost town. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is happening for the 50th anniversary of the Kent State Massacre on Monday? Laura Johnston, just two short months ago, this was going to be a big deal with Jane Fonda and David Crosby coming to commemorate the anniversary. The coronavirus canceled it all. Is anything happening? There is, but it's all online. There's a virtual candlelight ceremony already there. There are digital exhibits designed to teach people about the shootings and honor the victims. The cornerstone is a video set to go live at noon on Monday. There's also a recorded version of the May 4th Voices play that includes Tina Fey and her husband, Kent State alum, Jeff Richmond, that's going to air on radio stations around the country over the next week. You coordinated a big package of content about this anniversary, and I was fascinated by some of the conversations you had with younger members of the staff who were learning many of the details for the first time and had such a rabid interest in them. That fresh set of eyes came up with some interesting angles. What can people look for over the next few days on Cleveland.com and in Sunday's Plain Dealer? Today, we have a story by Mary Kilpatrick um, about current Kent State students that are taking a semester-long class on the shootings. Tomorrow, Robin Goist has a look at the May 4th Visitor Center and Museum. Sunday, we have a column by Ted Dieden, who is actually there on campus that day. And Monday, we have interviews with five survivors, including John Philo, who took that iconic Pulitzer Prize winning photo that everybody probably thinks of when they think of Kent State. Uh, Jerry Casal of of Devo and Alan Kenforo, who was shot through the wrist. And then we have these fantastic photo galleries by Dave Pekowitz, including 79 photos from May 1970 that you've probably never seen. And it's incredibly haunting to see National Guard tanks rolled up against classroom buildings just with students milling around. Yeah, those photos haven't been seen in a really long time. I think the Plain Dealer staff also have talked talked to a couple of survivors who've never given interviews before, uh, and they're publishing that online and in print on Sunday. So lots to look for. It's this week in the CLE. Is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost a budding rock star? Jane Cahoon, this is just not something you see every day. (laughs) Yes, our Attorney General has been an avid musician for for quite some time, and he also has a good sense of humor. He posted a parody on YouTube uh, about social distancing. It it was to the tune of Gimme Three Steps by Leonard Skinner, and it's called Gimme Six Feet, and it's about a guy in a grocery store trying his best to distance himself from a coughing, feverish customer. Yeah, and he told us that this is the way he's dealing with the isolation, is making music. So is it actually in the style Leonard Skinner? When anyone say it actually sounds like that? I, I don't want to knock a guy who's trying to play music. We need more <laughs> music in our lives. But, I'm, you know, is it any good? Anybody? Uh, <laughs> I don't Wynowski? think it was bad. It's, uh, Laura it's, Johnston? it's certainly something. It, it, it's, uh, 
Yeah. Have you listened to it? <laughs> Listen, the, the lyrics so, are really clever. You know, he, he might not have the, you know, hello? most outstanding voice in the world, but the lyrics are really clever. And he can play the guitar, right? So that's something. Yeah, yeah. So, so he published this on YouTube and tweeted it out. He must be proud of it. Ha- has he long been known as a guitar player and singer? Yeah, he's got a band called The Pursuit, and he's been making music for a long time. He he not only plays guitar, but he plays piano and bass. And um, he he's did some jamming at the Republican National Convention in 2016, and he's he's displayed these talents like in a campaign ad as well. Got, got, got to give him that. He's had an interesting background, right? He started as a newspaper reporter. He's had multiple elected positions. And now in his spare time, he knocks out rock song parodies. Maybe he should do the theme song for the wine with the wine. The, the one that you would play when it's getting long of the tooth and you want to drown somebody out and get them off the stage. <laughs> but we already have that great Laverne and Shirley parody theme song. Yeah. And interestingly, they've never played that during the I briefing. Know, they play they everything, should. everything else, no matter how lame, but that one's missed it this week in the CLE. Have Ohio unemployment claims passed the 1 million mark yet? Jane Cahoon, Thursday was the day we receive unemployment claim numbers. Did we hit the mark? Yes, indeed. We have crossed that 1 million mark, but at the same time, the weekly new claims have been dropping off a bit. They had 92,920 filed the week ending April 25th. I think that might have been the first week during the pandemic that they they haven't been in six figures. But overall, it's still astounding. Uh, By comparison, Ohio received uh, 715,000-some jobless claims during the entire past two years combined. We should point out, though, these are just the people who got the computer system to work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wonder how many had the same experience Chris Warnowski did, where the system would collect all the information needed and then come back with an error screen. One way to keep the unemployment numbers low is to have a system that won't accept people into it. <laughs> <laughs> right? That sounds diabolical. Chris, have you gotten through yet, Chris Warnowski? I, I have not. I, I anticipate spending all of next week to get through. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's this week in the CLE. Will Jimmy Demora be released from prison early because of the coronavirus? Just last week, I think, Demora was before a judge on video seeking to reduce his sentence on legal grounds. This is something different. Chris, how might Demora end his 28-year prison term way early? Well, uh, Jimmy is part of about like more than 800 inmates who are on a list of at-risk inmates at Elkton, one of the uh, coronavirus hotspots in uh, a federal penitentiary here in Ohio. And and so he's asked because he's he's older. I think he's 64 now, and and he has some health problems that. Um, his attorneys basically believe that he's vulnerable. And and so he ended up on this list of like 837 people who, who might get who released or transferred somewhere else. Does the length of his remaining sentence, he has a 28-year sentence and he hasn't even done half of it yet, make a difference? The fact that he has so much time left to go, unless he gets just shortened with the legal maneuvers, is it more likely, do you think? I know you don't have a crystal ball but is it more likely they would just move him to another prison? I think it depends. I, I, I honestly, I think it'll depend on resources and space and, 
you know, if, if they feel like he's, he's worthy of home monitoring or something. I mean, there's a, you know, when people read these headlines, they go, they're just going to let all these prisoners out. And it's like, no, there's other jails, there's, you know, halfway houses, there's work, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of different places that they can put him. It's just going to require, I mean, they're going to have to go through case by case, I think. And, and look at all of these people and, and see where they they can be, go, you know, and they're going to have to do it quickly. I think, you know, right. He wanted a, it was a two week window, wasn't it? And that was a yeah, week ago. So, so, you know, they're going to be evaluating the fate of a lot of people who are in that jail right now with good reason. I mean, it's a it's a it's been a nothing but bad news out of Elkton since this started. We don't hear much about Frank Russo in these conversations, and he is he's much more sick than than um demora is do we know anything about him well we yeah and so frank does have a lot of health problems uh he is last check he was in a medical prison in north carolina and and he he has not formally requested to be moved out of prison yet again no crystal ball here but you know i i feel like people who are really sick are probably going to start making this request pretty soon you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Mike DeWine the most popular governor in America right now? Jane Cahoon, we had a poll earlier this week showing that Ohioans give overwhelming approval to DeWine's handling of the coronavirus. Although I suspect that if the poll were done this week, it might drop a point or two because of the confusion on masks. No matter. Ohio loves him. Now we know where he stands compared to other governors. Right. There's a there's a new 50-state survey from Harvard, Rutgers, and Northeastern <laughs> University and DeWine's uh, handling of the coronavirus got approval from 83% of the respondents in Ohio, the, the highest rating of any governor in the country. And that, that does track with this earlier poll from Baldwin Wallace this week that, that where he scored like 85% on that issue. So De- DeWine comes out on top. He came out early as a national favorite. But then Cuomo in New York became like the media darling. Everybody was talking about him. Although the studies show Cuomo kind of dithered for more than a week on imposing a shutdown. And if he acted sooner, some studies are showing he could have saved a lot of lives. DeWine never dithered. So Cuomo's a loser here. Who gave <laughs> DeWine a run on the popularity scale? Well, well, the next closest governors to DeWine were Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir at 81%. And Maryland Governor Larry Hogan and Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker each got 80 percent. But Cuomo wasn't exactly a loser. He got 74 percent. The um, the Kentucky was interesting because, you know, DeWine gets high points for the way he acted to close the state down and reduce the transmission. Kentucky's kind of gone the other way, right? They're like, <laughs> open it back up. I mean, even Donald Trump criticized the Kentucky plan, right? Yeah, I, well... Who knows? Yeah, you know, it's just yeah. odd that the two top guys are in kind of the opposite direction. Who were the um, governors who did the worst? Well, first, I'd, I'd like to note that President Trump did worse than every single other governor in this oh. survey, you know, <laughs> state by state. He, in Ohio, he got 51 percent approval. But that, of course, that's way lower than DeWine. And overall, he got like 44 percent. But as I said, state by state in each state. He was lower than the governor, even like Hawaii, where that governor got only 39 percent. He was lower than that. But anyway, other than Hawaii, South Dakota got below 50 percent. And then 
The other ones who did crack 50%, but were still probably on the lower end, were Florida, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Okay. This week in the CLE. With summer on the horizon, what's going on in Putin Bay? Yes, Laura Johnston, we are talking about Lake Erie. I know you've missed it. Can people plan on going there this summer? I, I don't know. For now, you can only go to Putin Bay if you live there or if you own property or are an essential worker. And with the new stay-at-home order that DeWine just put out, you're looking at at least after Memorial Day before we can go anywhere. Is that right? The expiration date is Memorial Day? Well, it's May 29th. And so I said to my husband, like, oh, at least it doesn't include Memorial Day. He's like, Laura, like that does include Memorial Day. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's really early this year. So there'll be no Memorial Day gatherings anywhere, including Putin Bay. Does not look like it. The uh, th- Does it look like they're preparing to be open this summer? I mean, the whole thing about COVID-19 not transmitting easily outside would seem to favor Putin Bay. You would think so, but they are preparing. They are getting ready as as well as they can. And I think they're talking to people online about jobs because a whole lot of college kids and people go over there just to work in the summer. And if they can't, it's going to devastate these businesses because they've got four or five months to make their living for the entire year. After October, no one goes except for you know a few ice fishermen if we ever get ice again. So they're already dealing with high water because we get record high and the waves are beating up their infrastructure. But for right now, they're just waiting to see what happens next. I was just going to say, this sounds like the plot to Jaws. (laughs) (laughs) The the thing is, too, about being outside. Sure, you could be like, I'm at a big open space. There's not a lot of beaches on Putin Bay, but, you know, you're on the water. There are a lot of places where people crowd together, like in the bars. And I swear the world's longest swim up bar is in Putin Bay. So that is not a socially distant area. I'm going to put you all on the spot because I have not read the governor's new order. I know Seth Richardson posted it a little while ago. Uh, Is the if people leave the state to go to states where they're allowed to do things, if they open the beach towns or something, does Ohio still have the 14-day quarantine if they come back? It's a really good question. Um, maybe some people want to go to Michigan for a long weekend. <laughs> or uh, like we always go to our cottage in Canada and the borders shut down there at least through most of May. So I think everybody's going to be trying to figure out like, does this mean you're allowed to go to a different house that you own in a different state? And then what does that mean when you come back? I think we're going to get a lot of questions about this at the two o'clock briefing. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. So we end another week, and tomorrow's supposed to be warm and mostly sunny. Time to get outside again. Chris, you're going to ride your bike? I will be out. My mom bought a stand-up paddleboard, so I'm trying to get her to go out with me on the river. Wow, and you can do that with social distancing, so. Yes. You know, May 1st. you have your pool set up yet? No, my daughter wants I was like, well, it's like 50 degrees, so we'll wait until. There's no heater in this blow-up pool. <laughs> tomorrow's supposed to be 67, I think. May, May the 1st kind of launches the best weather of the season around here. We get five months of pretty decent temperatures and shorts <laughs> weather. COVID-19 only makes it that much more important, right? I mean, do, do we all think this is the year people really do spend much more time outside, riding bikes, playing tennis? They already are. They, yeah, they are. Right. And they have to if they want to see anybody else. Okay, well, we hope you get outside too. Thanks, Chris, Lara, and Jane. And thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. Have a good weekend. We'll be back on Monday.